what has the COVID-19 pandemic been like for me and ICU doctor? I'm going to talk about that a little bit today. I, I've been treating COVID patients since day one of this pandemic. And in particular, I put COVID patients on ECMO and manage them, which is a whole other ball game of disease and sickness and tragedy and successes. So that is going to be the main thing we're talking about today. Let's, and today, let's go beyond the images of exhausted healthcare workers with their masks and all their gear, which, of course, is what it's like. But, but those superficial images don't tell the full story of what's going on. The, the, the human tragedy on the one side of patients being lost, family members losing their loved ones, and the moral damage and the costs of mental health on the healthcare providers. So just like anybody else, when I heard about the, you know, coronavirus in China and, and living here in the United States, when I heard about it in 2019, winter, you know, it was, it was kind of like, oh, is this a thing that we need to worry about? Is it like SARS? You know, so I was just like anybody else. But then around January and February, um, I was getting reports from, from Seattle, from people that I know there, that they were, and if you recall, that was kind of where the first infections really were starting to happen. And from people that I know personally that were working there, um, and the virus was really starting to sound kind of scary. I was hearing about not only were these patients being hypoxic, um, not, not being able to breathe, ne needing a ventilation, but that they were having cardiomyopathy and that they were dying of like, uh, you know, V-fib, that they were having cardiac arrest and dying that way. So it was very much like, oh my gosh, is this a virus that's just kind of come for any anybody and it can kill anybody? And, you know, looking back retrospectively, it's true, it can. Fortunately, it's not as, uh, as pathological and as dangerous as maybe we had feared at the beginning. It still obviously has been, had widespread and devastating consequences, both in our healthcare system. It has killed many, many people, and it will completely change, you know, everything for a generation, including generations growing up in this. So, I, you know, I don't want to understate the, the significant impact. When I had heard about this going on in China even before that, and I was reading medical reports, I knew these patients were getting ARDS, and that's what was killing them. And ARDS stands for Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome. It's a constellation of findings that uh, where someone gets kind of, they can get fluid in their lungs, they can get scarring of their lungs, and it can be caused by many different insults of the lungs, including a virus. Um, someone can aspirate vomit. Someone can get pancreatitis. Someone can get a pulmonary contusion from a car accident. All of these things can cause ARDS. When I first saw those images from China of patients that were sick and dying, and I saw uh, CT scans, CAT scans of their lungs, I was like, they're getting ARDS. This is what's killing people. And then, you know, flash forward uh, a few months later, six months later, whatever it was, and sure enough, I'm treating patients that have ARDS. Now, I don't work in a medical ICU, so I'm anesthesia critical care um, as, a to as opposed to pulmonary critical care. These are different types of, types of intens intensivists. Usually anesthesia critical care does not attend in a medical ICU. A medical ICU has like, you know, DKA, which is diabetic ketoacidosis, or these classic medical critical illnesses that you treat, and also like really out there rare diseases and things like that. Um, now I do treat medical patients, uh, but I just usually, I don't attend in a medical ICU. I attend in a cardiac ICU and also a medical surgical ICU that I do get some of those medical patients um, that come as overflow, but I mostly treat surgical patients like cardiac patients, patients that have had liver transplants and things like that. Um, so I wasn't initially, I was not initially treating COVID patients right up front. 
they were in the medical ICU with my pulmonary critical care intensivist colleagues. But believe me, I knew what was going on um, and, and saw what was happening with these patients. This is before vaccination and all that. And then flash forward to now we're putting patients on ECMO, and that's where I come in. Um, because uh, to be on ECMO, you, really, you need to be in a cardiac ICU. Um, and it's usually anesthesia intensivists that are, are managing an ECMO machine. So what, just backing up, what is ECMO? Stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. Extracorporeal means outside of the body. Membrane oxygenation means there's this little membrane that oxygenates the blood as it passes through. It's basically a heart-lung bypass machine. We, can, we put these big catheters, usually in someone's groin and neck. They can go in different configurations. We continuously drain the blood out of the body, we oxygenate it, and we pump it back into the body. And depending on where you put the, the big catheters, you, you either provide oxygenation or you, or you provide blood flow um, to also help if someone's in cardiac failure. Usually for COVID ARDS patients or patients with ARDS uh, from other causes, we usually put them on just the, the ECMO type that uh, replaces their lungs. And we call that VV ECMO, veno-venous, meaning we drain from the venous side and we put it back into the venous side. The type that helps bypass the heart and lungs together is VA ECMO, veno-arterial, meaning we return the blood flow to the arterial side, helping to replace the pumping of the heart. Because where does the heart pump? It pumps to the arterial side. So anyways, so we're usually putting these patients on VV ECMO, and that's where I come into play in this pandemic. Here's my typical COVID patient that I'm gonna place on ECMO first. So I get a call from like the medical ICU, or I get a call from Montana, or whatever state it is that's in the area, and asking, hey, I have a patient. They're usually younger. When I say young, I mean like less than 65, less than 60, um, or th you know, a 30-year-old, or a 20-year-old, or a 40-year-old. These are young patients. That's already a good candidate. One of the things when you're assessing candidacy of putting someone on ECMO is, will they survive the ECMO machine? Or will they die on the ECMO machine? We want to avoid the situation where they're not going to have recovery um, or there's no out to get off the ECMO. You don't just put someone on ECMO to sustain their life without giving them an out. So if someone is not likely to recover or if they have many comorbidities, many illnesses, or if they're of advanced age, they're usually not a candidate for ECMO. If they have neurological injury, like a brain bleed, if they have metastatic cancer, these are, these are patients that are not candidates for ECMO because ECMO is an extremely resource-intensive um, constrained resource that needs to be triaged and it does it needs to be rationed I, I hate to use that word in the context of medical care but it is the reality it is the truth it has to be rationed and it must be used judiciously um, uh, to give the best chance to the patients that we're putting them putting them on so I, I first assess candidacy are they what what is their age uh, what is their BMI and this is I know this is very controversial I've done videos about this where uh, we shouldn't um, discriminate with, uh, for people that have a high BMI, and we shouldn't even use BMI as a measure of anything. Now, I agree with both, both those points, but there's a reason we use BMI. So BMI is an imperfect method, and it's not, a, it's not a measure of health, and I do recognize that. You don't just say, oh, this person has a BMI, so they're unhealthy. Now, having a BMI correlates with obesity, obviously, and the higher the BMI, the more likely you are to be obese and have more fat tissue than muscle tissue. And having a BMI and being obese puts you at risk for disease, like cancer, hypertension, things like that. And that's just a fact. So the reason we have a BMI cutoff for ECMO, it's a mechanical problem. And usually uh, institutions have a BMI cutoff of 40 or 45. And when I say it's a mechanical problem, what I mean is we put these catheters in, into people's groins. Now, if someone has a lot of fat tissue, 
for one thing, it's difficult to put the catheter in. We can do it, but it's difficult. But then you have fat tissue compressing that catheter. And then you have to turn up the flows of your, your ECMO machine. And you, you often cannot draw off enough blood to even run the circuit. So that's a huge problem. The higher the flows go, you start destroying your red blood cells. And then you become uh, anemic. And that can cause all sorts of problems with your circuit and with your, with your other organs if you're destroying red blood cells. And someone could argue, well, why don't you just make the catheters bigger? The reason is someone's vessels don't grow as you gain fat tissue. The only, the only thing that grows is your fat tissue. So there's a limit to what we can do with these catheters. And that is why we have a limit of BMI because it simply won't function. That is the reason. It is a mechanical problem. Another thing I look at for candidacy if a patient is a candidate for ECMO is have they maximized their medical therapy? Meaning has the medical ICU or wherever they are, have they maximized what they're able to do medically rather than surgically, which is kind of what ECMO is. It's a procedure. It's a surgical procedure, you could say. So maximize their medical therapy. Are they on max? What is their, what are their vent settings that they're on? Are they optimized? Have they been proned? Proning helps with ARDS and COVID ARDS, 100%. This is a therapy that we know for the last 20 years of ARDS research helps not only oxygenation, but helps mortality, helps people survive. So have they been proned? Have they been on par uh, paralysis, paralytic medications that also help oxygenation? So I review these things. What are their vent settings? What's their age? What are their comorbidities? Have they maxed out medical therapy? And then I make the decision, okay, yes. And then, okay, yes, they're a candidate for ECMO, but then I have to see, do we have room for this patient? Do we have the resources? How many COVID patients do we have on ECMO already? And I will tell you right now that during the height of the uh, Omicron surge, when we had a lot of patients on VV ECMO, COVID patients, all of which were unvaccinated, there were people that we couldn't accept and put them on ECMO because we had too many patients. That, and that is a direct consequence of people being unvaccinated. If people were vaccinated, this would not have happened and less people would have died. There's no doubt about it. There is much misinformation and disinformation about vaccines and all that, but I am telling you the truth. I am at ground zero and I have seen it. It is, it's a huge fallout from, from the misinformation and disinformation campaign from, of anti-vaccine people. Anyway, so they must meet criteria and we must have room. And then we say, yes, we'll put this patient on ECMO. So the institution that I work at, uh, both cardiothoracic surgeons and us uh, intensivists, we are capable of putting the patients on ECMO. So routinely, or typically, well, the patient will either they're transferred or I go to the medical ICU and we will put them on ECMO there. Sometimes it's, it takes a lot of coordination because they can be too unstable to be, to be transferred before they're even placed on ECMO. Anyway, so it takes a lot of logistics stuff. Um, putting someone on ECMO is basically, if you're familiar with what a central line is, that's where you put a, a, like a, a big, an IV in, your, in a big vein, like your, in your jugular, in your neck. It's basically two very large central lines that go into, typically at my institution, we do different types of things, but we do one into the right inter, in, uh, internal jugular, which is the neck, and then one into the femoral vein, which is in the groin. We gain access by, uh, get access to the vessel, dilate the vessel, dilate it up, so that, that we can then thread an enor a very big catheter through. If you're interested in the sizes, a typical good size is like a 19 French return and like a 25 French um, uh, uh, venous out output, to, to which you need that side to be larger so that you can actually draw blood out of the system. So a 19 French and a 25 French. That's a typically a good place to start. It depends on the, on the size of the patient. So we, when we put them on ECMO, we, we put in those cannulas, or catheters. We also call them cannulas. You'll hear me call them cannulas often as well. Put in those cannulas. You hook up to the ECMO machine. You make sure all the air is out of the system. You prime it with blood and fluid, 
and then you start it, you, you start the machine once you have those, those in. And uh, it's a, it, it is an awesome thing to see someone's pulse ox, you know, could be in the 70s, to suddenly chirp up to 90, you know, 95, 99, um, just by turning on the machine. So that, that, is, a, that is always a, an awesome moment when we first put, on, put them on ECMO and turn the machine on. Um, so that's a great time. But now they are at the beginning, these patients are at the beginning of a new and long and arduous journey of being on ECMO with COVID ARDS. Now, if, if I want to make something clear, when someone is on ECMO, it does not ensure flawless oxygenation. Just to repeat that, just because you're on ECMO, a machine that literally oxygenates all the blood that's coming in, it does not ensure that your oxygenation will be perfect. In fact, you can become hypoxemic for different reasons, and now things get a whole lot more complicated. The actual, the actual ICU management for ECMO patients is complicated, intense, and must be customizable, customizable for the patients. You can have troubles with ventilation, hypoxemia, anticoagulation, with sedation, there's a lot of stuff. These patients often get, <clears throat> um, they need aggressive diuresis. Got to get fluid out of them. I'll put them on uh, Lasix infusions, Bumex infusions, loop diuretics. Got to get fluid out of the lungs because their lungs are like cement. They're so full of fluid in the, in, within the organ itself that you, you have to start to do that. They often get collapsed lungs. They get something called pneumomediastinum, where they get air tracking along the heart, in between the heart and the lungs, extremely common. Um, so we can, you can actually take the breathing tube out of these patients when they're on ECMO. You can take them out, you can have them up out of bed and walking around, or you can go to a tracheostomy. There are risks and benefits of doing these both ways. <clears throat> Um, someone, a patient can give themselves lung injury if you extubate them, take the breathing tube out. They can give themselves lung injury by having these wild swings in their, in their pulmonary pressures um, if they're short of breath. And as I said, the ECMO doesn't necessarily going to take away all their shortness of breath. So you, you run the risk of further damaging their lungs. And one of the reasons we're putting them on ECMO is we believe the lungs are going to recover. Maybe they could be a lung transplant candidate. Um, kind of depends on the institution where you're at if you're transplanting lungs. But it is happening in, in the United States and elsewhere. But you don't want to damage their lungs more. The whole idea, the whole reason we're putting them on an ECMO is to rest their lungs. So oftentimes these patients get a tracheostomy right away. And sometimes they need to be sedated right away for days. Uh, and I am all about waking patients up. But I have been convinced by uh, my colleagues and a lot of people that have experience with this that you got to just rest their lungs even for even for up to a week because by waking them up and seeing how they breathe on their own they can cause damage to their lungs now like i said oxygenation is still a problem when you're on ecmo um you you can have issues with your ecmo flow with how when, when i say flow is how much blood return are you giving through your ecmo circuit and then the ecmo machine itself also injects blood into the bloodstream other things to keep in mind with these patients is they can be anemic and sometimes they need more blood hemoglobin to actually carry oxygen to their body and they need better delivery. One thing that I always keep in mind with these patients is, so, so you who are listening to this, you're probably, you know, I'm, if, you're, if you're healthy enough and you're not in the ICU, your body, your heart, and your hemoglobin delivers way more oxygen to your tissues than those tissues actually need. They actually deliver it in about a five to one ratio. What I mean is the delivery of oxygen to your tissues right now is five, to, is five times to one how much that is actually consumed by your tissues. So the oxygen coming back to your heart that's been used up is like, has like 70, you know, 60 to 70% still saturated with oxygen. Why, is our, why are our bodies designed this way? It's a buffer, 
right? So that you can go and exercise or run from a bear, which will, your muscles start consuming more oxygen. And so that delivery to those muscle tissue is already there. So as soon as you need to go run from a bear, evolutionarily, you know, um, the oxygen delivery is already there. The reason this is relevant is these, is these COVID ECMO patients, they're, these, this ratio, the delivery to consumption is way, way less. It can be three to one, two to one, one to one. They're on a razor thin edge. So if they get septic, if they get an infection, that makes you consume more oxygen. And just by being septic, you get hypoxic. Let me repeat that. If someone gets septic and an infection, they suddenly, their oxygen levels can drop because they're not delivering enough oxygen to compensate for their sepsis. Very unique in this patient population. So it's important to keep their hemoglobin high to help to correct this. There are other ways to reduce oxygen consumption. Keep them sedated, have them paralyzed, let them be a little permissive hypothermia. Um, obviously you treat the sepsis. We can give beta blockade to blunt their high heart rate. As I said, blood transfusions. Um, there's just, there's many things that can go wrong. And things can go wrong with the ECMO machine. The oxygenator within the ECMO machine can go wrong. It can clot off. That brings up another point. These patients are anticoagulated. Anytime you expose blood tissue, blood, to an artificial surface, you can cause clotting. Um, so they must be on a blood thinner. I know some institutions maybe don't always have a blood thinner or they have heparin-coated ECMO circuits, so that does vary. But these patients need to be, um, they need to be anticoagulated and so they can bleed a lot because they're anticoagulated. And yet, even though they're anticoagulated, they can also clot because they can get platelet dysfunction because their platelets are going through the circuit and you can get platelet aggregation. It is a fine balance. It's a wild dance with these patients trying to get their coagulation right. Another thing I've mentioned on my TikTok channel is sedating these patients. They take boatloads of sedation. And I am talking tremendous, tremendous amounts. I've had amounts. I've had patients that are on a propofol infusion, a presidex infusion, hydromorphone infusion, which is called Dilaudid, midazolam infusion, an Ativan infusion. And then they're on methadone. Um, maybe even a fentanyl infusion. Maybe they're on gabapentin or mirtazapine. There's, and they're still breaking through and they're waking up and just by waking up, they're so sick that just by waking up their oxygen drops, just by waking up, they consume all this oxygen and they wake up. A lot of people die this way. We, can, we can't ever wake them up because their lungs are so bad and the ECMO, ECMO machine is not enough and we can never wake them up. And then they stay like that for weeks, they get immobilized, their bodies decondition and that's how they die. It's a huge problem. So how do we liberate these patients from ECMO? There's four things that dictate how they do. Number one, how damaged are the patient's lungs? How, how much has a virus destroyed their lungs? We, we often don't know for weeks. We don't know, even, we, even though if we scan, um, I've, I've scanned patients' lungs that look terrible and then they recover. Their lungs get better, not perfect. They're gonna be, have problems their entire life. So that's, that's a question, how damaged are the patient's lungs? The next question is, are they clinically stable enough to participate in physical therapy? Can they get out of bed? If they can't get out of bed, they're not gonna survive. They must maintain uh, muscle mass. They must maintain good physical therapy. Uh, the third one is, can we wean the ECMO? Are we able to turn down the oxygen? Are we able to turn down how much carbon dioxide we're taking off? Are we able to turn down how much flow we're giving them? If we can't wean it, they're not coming off ECMO. And then the fourth one is what I was mentioning before, a balance between pain control, getting them good sleep, and facilitating mobility with their sedation. Are we able to wean their sedation? Those are the four things. Are the lungs recovering? Do they have mobility? Can we wean the ECMO? And can we wean their sedation? 
if we can't achieve these four things, the patients don't survive. About half, oh, and there's just so many other problems they can get uh, that other barriers to overcome. They can get infections like a pneumonia. It happens all the time. They can get a bloodstream infection. They can have multi-organ failure. They, they can go into kidney failure. They don't all do. They can, their, their livers can, they can have problem with their livers. I talk about problem with bleeding. They can be delirious. And then all these other things that can go wrong with the ECMO circuit. <clears throat> there's many things that can go wrong with these patients. Half get off ECMO. Half. 50% were able to liberate from ECMO. Of those, it doesn't mean all of those leave the hospital. But the majority of those people that we get off ECMO do leave the hospital. So is it worth doing this? Well, the things that I've just explained to you, I explain to a patient's family before I put them on ECMO. I give them the what's their chances of surviving, what the course is going to be like, and so that they're informed. And if they want it and if they believe their loved one will want it, then we do it. And sometimes they survive and sometimes they don't. The younger you are, the more likely you are to survive. But I've seen, I've seen older people also survive um, ECMO and get off. So from my perspective, obviously I'm biased. I think it is worth it to do this, but we do expose patients to a lot of suffering um, um, that they wouldn't have. Uh, and they definitely would die without ECMO. There's no doubt about that. I've seen patients get off, these COVID ECMO patients get off ECMO after maybe eh, 20 days, but sometimes they're on 50 days, 60 days, 70 days. That is a long time to be in the ICU in, in what I would describe as a state of suffering. Yeah, we do keep patients sedated, but all the time we do have to wake them up. Um, so it's a long, long course for these patients. And so many people are involved in keeping these patients alive. You know, it's not just me as the intensivist. There are nurse practitioners, physician assistants that are very experienced. There is the ECMO specialist, um, a perfusionist that's, that's literally there the whole time with the ECMO machine in case things go wrong. There's the ICU nurse. There's physical therapy. There's, there's um, <clears throat> I mean, the list, I could, I can, there's lab draw people. There are... Um, x-ray techs, and then there's all the consulting services. There's, you know, infectious disease that we consult. There's the, the kidney doctors that we consult. Maybe we need to consult neurology for this patient. The list goes on. Pharmacy. The pharmacists that I, that I work with are absolutely incredible. They're the most evidence-based people. I'm leaving people out. I know I am. My point is it takes many, many people and resources to keep these people alive and to get them through this. So I, I hope I've shed some light on understanding of why this is a limited resource and why we, and I'm sorry, it's like a cruel world, but we have to be selective about who is placed on ECMO so that we can maximize the benefit and maximize the survivability of patients that we place on ECMO. It is a great day when we're able to, to liberate someone from ECMO and send them out of the ICU. It's amazing. It, everybody's cheering. It's awesome. But just as many of those, we have the ones where we have to move to comfort care and stop our efforts and let the patients pass away peacefully. These are extremely difficult discussions to have with the family because they've been, they've been here for weeks and weeks. They've been hopeful that their, their, their loved one will survive. And I'm talking young people. I'm talking people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s that are dying on ECMO with, from COVID um, that are normal BMI, that have no comorbidities. It is happening. It drives me crazy when when people are just like, oh, well, what were their comorbidities? What was their BMI? You know, blaming them, trying to blame the patients, which is such a ridiculous mentality. It doesn't even deserve a discussion. Um, but I've been in many conversations, talked with many families that I believe it's time to stop. I don't think they're gonna recover. It takes families a long time to get there. I give them the time that they need 
to get there. And then I will stand there at the bedside with them um, as we wind down the ECMO machine and the vent <clears throat> and give more sedative medications. And this is where uh, this comes into play that these patients now have a high tolerance to sedatives, right? Because they've, they've been on all these benzos and opiates for weeks and weeks and weeks. And now as we withdraw things, they, get, they start to get air hunger and they start to get uncomfortable. So we now need to give them medication to keep them comfortable. And they require very high doses to even touch them as they're passing. Um, so that's why it's an important thing to not just be like, oh, a patient got this medication, that high of a dose, that's outrageous. No, you must know what their tolerance. Um, that's why it takes someone trained like an ICU nurse or an intensivist like me or a, a nurse practitioner or a PA to be there at bedside, to be giving them medications, to make that patient comfortable as they pass away. So I've stood there with families uh, many times as we administer medications to ensure that they pass away, pass away painlessly and peacefully um, and so that their family can have closure and also have peace with the passing of their loved one, with its, whether it's their husband, their wife, their uncle, their father, their son. I've seen it all. Okay, switching gears, let's, let's get away from that sadness a little bit and let's move on to something that is also sad and that is relevant to this. I wanna talk about why are we in this, what has caused this position that we're in where we are drowning in misinformation and disinformation and that we have patients that are dying out there in the community, dying in hospitals everywhere because of uh, this misinformation about the vaccine, that the vaccine will cause you harm. I want to be very clear. In the height of the Delta and the Omicron surge, the un, the, this, is, has been, this has become mostly a disease of the unvaccinated. That, there's no doubt about that. Now, we can, you know, we can talk about pharmaceutical uh, collusion with FDA and, and how they profit so much from vaccines and medications, which, of course, they do. There's no doubt about that. Um, but we live in a world that's complex, where you can have pharmaceutical companies that are unscrupulous and they are profit-seeking and they also can make things that work. And that's what you have with the vaccines. I don't know about the, you know, the other antiviral medications are very questionable in my opinion if they actually work because all of the randomized control trials that the clinical use is based on were all funded by pharmaceutical companies. I mean, basically every single one of them. But anyway, when it comes to the vaccines, they definitely work. It's confirmed by retrospective epide epidemiological data you just all you have, where retrospective means you look back. You're like, okay, did the vaccines work? Oh, let's look back. Oh, they clearly do. They obviously do. They're not perfect. They're not 100% efficacious, but they clearly correlate with reduced disease, hospitalization, and death. That is irrefutable. That is an unassailable fact. So why are we having so much problems with, with people not understanding this? My answer is because of culture war, right? It's because of culture war. What is, it, what is a culture war? It's a war of ideas. Um, morals and um, I guess standards uh, that is based on ideology. That's what a culture war is. And a culture war produces culture warriors. One of the problems that we're having in American society and elsewhere is that our ideology, ideologies are becoming um, stacked with our identities. We have an ideology and it becomes, it, it gets stacked along with our identity. What do I mean by that? Well, back in the 60s, 70s, whatever, if you voted Republican, it didn't, it didn't have something to do with your identity. But now if you vote Republican, it's, it, it correlates strongly with your identity um, of, of other things. Same thing with like being a liberal or a Democrat, right? If you are a vegan, so if you identify as a vegan, you are probably voting Democrat, right? 
that ideologies, those ideologies stack and they become entrenched with your identity. So ideology and identity become enmeshed. And that is one of the main problems that we're having right now. Now, if you're like a politician, if you're a senator, if you're a congressperson, whatever it is, this is, this is the ideal situation for you because all you need to do is pluck on the, on the strings of, of a culture war and you enrage the people that identify with that. Um, it, it creates group bonding, cohesion with your own group. It, it, it uh, engenders more tribalism and it's just, it's incredibly easier to manipulate people. And how do you manipulate people? You do it with a culture war. That is how you manipulate people. Why, if you were someone in power, uh, or, you know, if you're a politician, why do you want a culture war? It's because it is a grand distraction from the truth and the reality, which is that, in, at least in American society, our government does not function anymore for the public. It doesn't. It doesn't matter what party it is. It doesn't function to serve the public. That is the reality. And so politicians use the culture war as a distraction to galvanize their base, to be like, hey, see this culture war? This is what it's all about. This is what you need to be angry about. This is what you need to be passionate about. Oh, and let's just ignore all of the state and um, uh, corporate collusion that's going on that only enriches uh, the very wealthy, which is basically what our, you know, we, we're not a democracy, of course not. We're not a democratic republic, of course we're not that. We're a plutocracy or an oligarchy where, a, you know, a small group of people actually control things. They control the wealth and they actually control what's going on. So what does this have to do with vaccination and the vaccines? Well, I, in my opinion, things just kind of bubble up naturally. So if conspiracies start about anti-vax or whatever, then that will get, people will grab a hold, hold on that and they'll be like, oh, and they'll create a narrative from that and, and create this false culture war. And unfortunately, it's fallen along these lines. And now you have this tragic fallout that people, they genuinely believe the vaccine is killing people and that's going to kill them. They genuinely believe that. And then they get COVID and they die from COVID and nobody is dying from vaccines. Well, okay. Uh, very few people are like the Johnson Johnson. There's there's a very rare clotting disease that you can get. These things are ex exceedingly statistically rare, unbelievably rare, and you're more likely to get a clot from having COVID. So these culture wars just mask the reality of what's going on, and it it's tragic. The the misinformation and the disinformation is a tragedy for everybody involved, for all Americans involved. It doesn't matter if it's Republicans or whatever. It's it is, an, it is a great American tragedy, what's going on right now with disinformation. So, I mean, how can you know what's true? I mean, it's, it is the greatest, one of the greatest ironies of my life is I live in such a, an age of such incredible data. And it is probably the hardest time in human history, maybe, to know what's actually true and what reality is. And so what's the solution? Well, the solution, I'm sorry, it's hard to say, but it's you have to work. If you want to know what's true, you have to work. You can't passively sit back, scroll on social media, or watch cable news and expect to know what's going on because all these things are controlled. All of these outlets are controlled. The information that comes to you is controlled. So it takes work. You need to expose yourself to as many ideologies and as many news sources as possible and in a diverse way as possible. And then you, might, you have to read books. You have to read many, many books written by many, many different people, people that don't agree with you, people you do agree with, to actually get a, a glimpse of what's going on. That's the solution, and it's hard work, and many people are not willing to put in that work. They're, they're more satisfied feeling that, that tiny bit of gratification by believing you are right and you, your worldview is correct, and by condemning the other side and blaming them and inflaming that and just perpetuating that cycle. That, that feels better short term, and it's 
easier. It's easier to do that. So on the note, I'm going to recommend a specific book that I think is really important. I'm going to just tell you why it's so good. Um, that's going to help you cut through the nonsense a little bit. This book is called Calling Bullshit, The Art of Skepticism in a Data-Driven World. It's written by uh, Carl T. Bergstrom who's a, and, a, and Jevin West. Bergstrom is a statistician at the University of Washington. He's awesome. Um, the the kind of main thing about the, the, to know about this book, I mean, the main message is that falsehoods fly, lies fly, and the truth comes limping after it. It's very easy to spread bullshit and the truth comes looking after it. It's a very important book to read right now. I highly recommend it. Read it as soon as possible. Um, it's a blueprint of all the various ways in which lies, exaggerations, contextualizations, and data misrepresentation can flood the media sphere and, and completely corrupt what is true. One of the first principles is that science is messy. And as a, as a physician, I know that it is incredibly difficult to prove that something is true, whether it's a drug or a therapy or mortality rates for a sickness, whatever it is. It can take decades of many randomized control trials to even create a landmark study that can change medical practice. With that in mind, how could one obscure research paper whose hypothesis has been taken whole cloth and tacked into like the Twitterverse possibly have any bearing on scientific thought or be a representation of reality at all? So calling bullshit will outline to you the myriad of ways in which you are bullshitted. You'll learn about the Wakefield debacle connecting autism to the MMR vaccine in 1998, that was based on a tiny cohort that's been completely disproved, uh, but, it, but its influence is everlasting. The Brandolini principle is true, which is it's hard to prove all the bullshit that is produced. It's much easier to blast the waves with bullshit than it is to unpack the nonsense and disprove it. That's why it's so easy to spread. Technology has made bullshit problem much worse. Forget the all-seeing eye of, of AI in tech. If you start out with garbage training programs for the algorithm, you will get garbage out. Is it any wonder that a paper claiming to recognize criminality from a picture would produce nothing but utter bullshit if the input data was headshots of non-criminals and mugshots of convicted criminals? This is some, a case that he talks about in the book. The low cost of production and publication has contributed to this spreading of bullshit. There's, there's more volume, less filtering. Advertising revenue is designed to make you click, regardless of the content. This will make you cry, or this will make you angry, etc. You know, those clickable headlines. They convey emotion and not fact. News has changed from what is happening to how we are feeling. There are those that will conflate probabilistic causality with sufficient or necessary causality. Stacking, or, or saying that like, um, smoking doesn't kill you because there are smokers who don't die of lung cancer. Right? That's a logical fallacy. This is everywhere. It, bullshit conflates correlation with causality. But correlation doesn't sell newspaper. Causations do. So this is why you see headlines saying stuff like wine is good for the heart, when maybe it's not necessarily. Maybe that's just a correlation and not a causation. People confuse causation and correlation constantly. Disinformation relies on trusted people in your social circle spreading bullshit. The bullshit propagates because people have emotion over a headline and repost it without any vetting whatsoever. Computer-generated faces are created now as profile pics for fake accounts. They can be very convincing. Bots are in fake people with they're, they're fake people with fake identities with a very real agenda, and bot accounts will get retweeted by like the New York Times. Even scientific publications are very guilty of bullshit. Scientists and researchers have the same motivation and desire for career advancement than anyone else. They employ the prosecutor's fallacy in which a positive result in the test may paradoxically be more likely to be erroneous result than an actual occurrence, even if the test is very accurate. This comes in the, into play a lot when, when the size of the matching is ignored. 
Um, P-hacking, he talks about in this book, talks about P-hacking. It's a huge source of scientific nonsense where a, a researcher will curate their data to get that glorious P less than 0 0.05 to claim statistical significance. What, basically, when a metric starts to become a target, it ceases to be a good metric. The good news about this book is uh, that, that they talk about is you don't need to get into the black box of statistical analysis or of research. You don't need to understand these things to call bullshit. Remember this tactic. If it's too good to be, if it's too bad or good to be true, it is. The authors give us some very good advice. Ask yourself a few questions. What's the source? How do they know this? And what are they selling? Avoid confirmation bias, which we all have. Look at what the data is going in and what they are spitting out. When you, I love this part of this, what this book. When you call bullshit, it's a performative utterance. When you say that's bullshit, just by saying that, it's a performative utterance. I loved it. Be accurate, be correct before you speak out, be humble, be kind, pick your battles. You cannot tackle all the bullshit out there. Anyway, I very much recommend this book. That's kind of my review of it. Um, it's called Calling Bullshit by Bergstrom. Okay, lastly, I'm just going to get into answering a um, question here from TikTok. This is from uh, TikTok user bpain36 asking, <clears throat> are residents sometimes removed from the residency? If so, what happens to them? It can happen. Residents can be re removed from residency. Now, what does it mean removed? There's there's many reasons why people don't fulfill their residency. Number one, they just figured out they don't like medicine, so they stop going into it. So they they're done. I've seen that happen. It is rare, by the way. You know, someone being removed or leaving residency. So they don't like it. They leave. Um, that happens. <clears throat> or they'll switch residency. Someone will be like, Oh, I hate surgery. I'm going to go do anesthesia, which I do see. I've never once heard of somebody leaving anesthesia to do surgery. I swear that's never happened. Um, so th those, those things can happen. Um, kind of a, a trend of incompetency, which, I mean, I hate to use that word, but, but maybe poor judgment uh, that has to be like, a, like showing that as a trend, that an individual is having poor judgment, has a pattern of that. That could be a reason to remove someone from residency to not have them board certified and, and graduate to be able to practice. Um, that, that could definitely be a reason. Making a single mistake, even if that mistake resulted in patient death or harm, is not a, is not a reason to remove someone from residency. Um, it all depends on the context. Always, what it happened? What is the context? I've 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 known. Uh, well, I don't I don't want to get into any sensitive stories, but the, you know, it's just because someone has done something a mistake that's resulted in someone's death. It doesn't mean they they're removed from residency or fired or, or anything like that. And they certainly should not be criminalized. Um, so that's another reason. Um, uh, certainly drug diversion. If someone is diverting drugs away from patients like opiates and they're using that, that's a reason to be immediately removed from your residency and seek uh, rehab and, and that person needs support um, for, you know, for many different reasons. Um, and uh, sadly, um, it, it does happen. It's rare, but um, suicide rate is, is, uh, can happen with residents, um, particular, with particular fields as well. Um, I know that's not what we meant by leaving residency, but it is, it is uh, something that happens, you know. Residency is hard and people are exposed to all sorts of moral injury and exhaustion and fatigue, particularly during the pandemic, and, um, and that, can, that can lead to that unfortunate conclusion. Okay, one more question from someone on TikTok. Um, let's see, this is from, the username is thatcarly. Any advice on managing anxiety when starting on an acute care unit? Cardiac, like a cardiac or telemetry. So it's a good question. So I think there's many sources of having anxiety, you know, as, a, as whether you're a nurse or a medical student or a, or a physical therapist, whatever it is. 
Um, I, my main advice is the, the patient's care does not hinge on you alone. It doesn't matter who you are. I don't care if you're the main physician, whatever. Uh, it's a collaborative group team, group effort. So the world's not on your shoulders. You may feel like it is, but it's not. And there's no room for ego in medicine. Ego harms everybody. Ego harms the patient. When someone's ego starts to come out and they want to be like, oh, I'm right, or they feel like they need to do things right, right, you know, they have this like, I don't know, like persecution complex, like, oh, I have to come up with all the answers. You don't. You do not have to come up with all the answers. What you do need to do is ask for help. That's your responsibility. Your responsibility is not to come up with all the answers. Your responsibility is to ask for help when you don't know. Um, ask for help and don't harm patients. Don't be like, I have to do these things on my own. I know this. I know it. No. And you, it's important to be in a culture where it's okay to ask for help, where you're not ridiculed. Um, you know, uh, getting getting out of that fear culture and more into this collective culture where uh, it is a team sport, taking care of patients. There's no way everybody, particularly in critical care or in a you know acute care unit, there's no way that you can know everything. One person knows every single detail about that patient. It's we all get this kaleidoscope experience together. We bring that together. We harness that together. We make decisions for our patients so that they will improve that's that's the idea so i you know lift that burden off of yourself um, and that that may help with your anxiety all right i think that'll wrap it up for this episode um thank you for listening i will continue to do to do this in little small moments that i have little little bits here and there um, whether i'm doing the dishes <clears throat> or have five minutes here or there so um you know leave a review if you like it um, share this with your friend um, again, I don't make any, you know, commission or no advertising or anything like this. This is just for, you know, kind of a community service to educate people and to have fun. I have fun doing this as well. Um, so, yeah, until next time. Thank you.